Welcome, friends and fellow thinkers, to another episode of Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. My dear Thoughtvolutionists, I'm your host, Stefan Dubier. Now, let's take a deep breath. <sighs> because today's episode is a special one. It's the final episode of our first season, and it comes with a whirlwind of emotions. We started this journey together with one simple goal, to explore the depths of human thought, to challenge our perspectives, and to grow together. And in every conversation and in every revelation, we've done just that. We've evolved. Now, as we reach the season's end, it's not without a tinge of sadness. However, there's a joyful reason behind this pause. I'm adopting one more kid. Yes, another beacon of potential, a bundle of love, another evolving mind joins my family, and I could not be more thrilled. But as you might imagine, this new addition requires my undivided attention. Therefore, Thoughtvolution will take a little break. I know it's hard to say goodbye, even if it's just for a while, but this also offers you a chance to revisit our past episodes, to relive those fascinating discussions, to let the wisdom of our guests sink in, to catch up on the ones you may have missed, and most importantly, to continue your own thoughtvolution. Now, on to today's special guest, a woman who encapsulates the spirit of resilience and courage. Terry. She's a writer, a storyteller, a woman of incredible strength. Born and raised in the vibrant city of Detroit, her life was turned upside down when the person she loved became a murderer. Terry is a homicide survivor, but she is so much more than that. She's a symbol of defiance in the face of tragedy, a beacon of hope for others who have survived similar experiences. And now she's here, wearing her heart on her sleeve, ready to share her story. Terry's mission transcends her personal narrative. It addresses the societal issue that is often overlooked, the silencing of survivors' voices. She challenges the norm, advocating for survivors, especially those affected by school shootings, to step forward and share their stories. She's a firm believer that victims and survivors are more than just footnotes in a news article. Their stories deserve to be heard. Every day, countless lives are lost to senseless acts of violence. Terry fights to ensure their memory lives on and their stories spur change. For Terry, this isn't just about moments of silence or offering condolences. It's about fostering conversations, promoting meaningful change and shifting the narrative from tragedy to action. This is what she advocates for. This is her mission, and today she's here to share it with us. So my friends, as we embark on this final journey of the season, prepare yourselves for a story of heartbreak, survival, resilience, and most importantly, hope. Welcome to Thoughtvolution. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about homicide, murder, violence, suicide, and depression. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for being here for this 
final episode of season one of Thoughtvolution. Why start on a lighter note when we can begin by talking about finality? <laughs> How do you wish to be remembered one day when you are gone? The way I want to be remembered, it's funny you should ask that because I just had a shift in perspective about my life as I have gone through my healing journey. Prior to healing, I'm I'm a mother of three and a grandmother of eight. I have a blended family. My my former husband had two children, I had one, and they gifted us with eight grandchildren. And I always used to say that I thought 85 was the perfect age to kind of like kick the bucket because you've lived a long life. And I watched my grandkids grow into their lives and possibly start their families as well. But um, as I've healed and I, I feel a tremendous amount of gratitude in my life, I said, I'll take it to 100 if I can, as long as I'm healthy, of sound mind, and physically able to still depend on nobody but myself. So yeah, so I think 100 is a number for me, and I just want to live each day with love until the day I die, until the day I draw my last breath. That's finality for me. That's how I see it going for me. I think that's a beautiful mindset to have. Who are some of the people you look up to now? You mentioned your kids. Some people look up to their parents, to loved ones, to celebrities. Who inspires you and why? I would have to say the person I look up to the most, who inspires me the most, would be my dad. I was a daddy's girl, so I, I'm grateful to have had him in my life. But I've learned to dig deep by the example he set for me. So my dad, I would say he was the person who inspires me the most and the one I look up to the most. Tell us a bit about life growing up. You mentioned that your dad influenced you the most when you were little and even now. How would you describe your childhood? Well, I was born in Detroit. And when I was in school, in kindergarten, I was, I'm the youngest of four. Okay. And my parents split up when I was in kindergarten. And my father got custody of us, which is to say a lot about the issues that my mother had. And I love my mom. That doesn't mean I don't love her. I'm, but I was a daddy's girl. My father raised me. He was all that I had. So we grew up in Southwest Detroit. The first year coming out of kindergarten and going into the summer, you know, I'm a single parent. I was a single parent before I, I married my, my now ex-husband. And looking back on this now as an adult, I can see where my father stepped to the plate and rationalized how, well, I have four kids and with them being home from school in the morning, you know, for 30 minutes by themselves before they leave for school and coming home, it's uh, 90 minutes. That's That can be comfortable for a parent, you know, rationalizing, yes, my child or children can stay by themselves for this long and I feel okay with it. But it's very different when it's all day and it's summer. And back in the 60s, there weren't a lot of, you know, after school or summer programs for kids because they had moms at home and we didn't have a mom. So as we came out of the school year and going into the summer, I'm sure he was like, what am I going to do with my kids all day? Now we were, as I like to refer to as free range chicken kids. And so the first couple of the weeks of summer vacation were going very well. And then all hell broke loose. This was 1967 and the Detroit riots happened. 
And my father realized that we we weren't just home alone by ourselves. We were defenseless. So he was very concerned for us. Now, even though we did not have an adult supervising us from the home, that's not to say that we didn't have any adults supervising us. Our neighbors watched over us and they walked us to the park sometimes, or sometimes they walked us with their kids to the ice cream store. It was that time, which it's very different now. I don't think I don't think we have that sense of community anymore. And we also knew as children that if a neighbor had to call our father or to knock on the door and say, hey, your daughter was doing this and this and this, it was as good as my dad witnessing the offense himself. And, you know, sentence was rendered right there. I mean, he would look at you and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. So it was, although it was a different time for latchkey kids, we weren't, we were never really alone. But with the riots happening, it was very unnerving for my father. And it was very restrictive for us because we were just feeling comfortable being by ourselves. And then the riots happened. And where we lived, I lived over by a uh, recreational center called General George S. Patton and the park. Everything shut down and we were restricted to just our front yards in the beginning for the first few days of the riots. And then when we were finally able to go to this park, which we ran all over the neighborhood with, this is a huge park. It's 93 acres. We ran it. We owned it. There were baseball diamonds, fishing ponds, tennis courts, indoor outdoor swimming pool, indoor outdoor basketball courts. We had everything we ever needed just two blocks from our home and we couldn't access it anymore. And then when we were finally able to access it and we walked over to the park with the neighbor neighbor moms, it was different. There was a a tent city of a National Guard that had come in and taken over probably, I don't know, about two or 300 soldiers. And it was a scary time. I and mean, We were intimidated. I have a story that I wrote. It's called The Summer We Became Soldiers. And I was talking to my sister about this time, you know, like, what do you remember about this time? She's like, all I remember is climbing up on the top of those monkey bars and looking out at those soldiers, wondering when they were going to leave because they were in the spot that we were at, you know, we couldn't get to the pond, we couldn't get to the other side of the park. And we didn't understand what was going on. I mean, I remember the first day after the riots, walking outside onto our front porch, and everyone was different. The neighbors were different. There was just the still, you could hear the sirens off in the distance, and you could smell the smoke. And so we were concerned as kids, you know, what was going on. But the adults, as you can imagine, were we're panicking. And, but they never explained anything to us because, you know, back in those days, you know, kids were to be seen and not heard. That was the generation we were raised by. And eventually the time had passed, a day or two had passed and things started easing up. And then we saw what was actually going on. And it was a scary time for us, but my dad stepped to the plate. He didn't skip a beat. Oddly enough, at this point, you know, my father was a former military man. He fought in the Korean War. He was an infantry foot soldier. He realized now his kids were defenseless. And so we actually, he started training us with his military training. Now I was only five and a half at the time. So he waited a few years, but we had weapons training. We had hand-to-hand combat training. He would teach us how to throat punch uh, somebody, uh, you know, and here I am, I'm five, six years old, seven years old. And he's like, swing your arm like a bat. 
And I'm like, oh, I can relate to that. That's how he taught me. Like, yeah, I can swing a bat. I know how to swing a bat, you know, and those kind of things. But he was a good man. He had a great sense of humor. And more importantly, for me, he gave me my voice. And, you know, I'm grateful for both my parents. You know, my mother, although she didn't raise me, as I look back on my time now, my parents gave me two gifts that helped me get me through life. And I didn't even know it at the time. And as I look back on it now, I'm grateful. So my dad was progressive in ways that are shocking to people because he was very conservative. And he took me everywhere with him. He started a political life, hitting the campaign trail. He became a political activist after the riots. He started to seek for change. And he always used to tell me, he always used to tell me, no matter where you go and no matter what you do, whatever room you walk into, you hold your head high and know that you belong. And my mother, when she would come and visit me, she came and visited me one time. Uh, after visiting hours, you know, you know, the visitation stuff. And uh, she snuggled in bed with me. And I, I thank her for this gift. She told me as she snuggled up next to me, stroking my hair, she was like, God put you here for a reason. And I'll never forget that. Now, she always used to tell me that throughout other times in my life. But there was something in that moment that stuck with me because as I got older and she told me this, oh, be God, mom, stop. You're embarrassing me. I'm so tired of hearing this, uh, you know, like a kid would, you know, but there was something in that moment when I was very young and she was in the bed next to me that stayed with me and I never forgot it. And when I look back on that time, as I was going, as I started my healing journey, I realized in that moment, she gave me purpose. And as I was coming up, my father gave me courage. And he gave me my voice. He gave me a confidence that I didn't even know that I had. And actually, and I'm grateful for that. You mentioned being a single parent. So am I, and I'm a single parent by choice. Now, in your view, are there advantages to being a single parent or to being raised by just one parent? I think, and this is going to sound crazy, I think that a child benefits from a two-parent household, most of all. Okay. But in reality, is that how a family should look? No. Families are different by all shapes and sizes and colors and cultures and backgrounds. All of these things are different. Would I, I chose to be a single parent myself. I raised my daughter from birth by myself and it was hard. It was very hard, but she was very, very loved. Would I choose to do it again? Yes. Would I prefer that I had chosen a better partner? to be with me and to parent her? Yes, of course. It's important for children to know the love of two parents, to see a healthy relationship. I would have to say that is probably the most important thing. I was not able as a single parent to teach, to model, to show my daughter what a loving, healthy relationship was. And you can't do that as a single parent. And I was very honest with her too, as I was raising her. I'm like, you know, as she started high school and started dating, I said, I am the only thing I regret is that I was never able to provide you with a healthy relationship modeled for you. But the most important thing I hope that you learn is that when you learn to love yourself and you wait for no one, everything comes to you. And I always used to tell her, you need to love yourself and put yourself first. Would you describe yourself as a relationship person? I know you ended up in one that got as bad as it could get, but that is probably not how it started. 
Tell us about how it all began. I met my daughter's father, my ex-boyfriend, when I was 15 years old. I used to babysit his younger sister. And it was like anything else, you know, a teenage romance. I liked him. He liked me. He was a bit of a, he was the kind of boy that all the girls wanted. And I was excited that he wanted me. So there was that. And it was sweet. It was innocent. He was my first love. He was my first sexual experience. And as a as a sexual assault survivor, I also survived childhood sexual trauma. And and I, I spoke to him about it. He was the first boy I talked to and I confided in. And I just had such a wonderful time with him. And there was such an innocence. And, and when I could talk to him about it, he gave me a safe space. I always wondered, I, I had begun to wonder, you know, as I grew, you know, about sexual curiosity and what it would be like for me because I had I had experienced a trauma that I didn't ask for as a child. And he taught me, he gave me autonomy over my body and let me just be me. He he wasn't like, and it's hard to describe because we were young, but there was such a tenderness to it. You know, most people talk about their first time as being this awkwardness. Now he was he was ex- more experienced than I was in that area, but he let me lead, and and I was grateful for that, and uh, I I will always be grateful to him for that. When did you notice that things were not okay? When did the rose-colored glasses come off? What were the red flags and how did you ultimately spot them? Um, he was jealous. He was a, a, a jealous person. That was my red flag. But when I shared it with my girlfriends, they're like, oh, that just means he really, really loves you. You know, it, we were teenagers, you know, and, and the stupid things we thought meant love, you know. So he, he was jealous. He was uh, possessive, very possessive. And and that was my first red flag, the the jealousy. But as we progressed, and we only were really intimately involved for a year in our relationship, but I started growing and becoming more confident in myself, partly in due to my relationship with him. And I was grateful for that. And so I ended it as I got older, as as I went into to twelfth grade. I said, no, I, I, I don't, I don't want this. I, I don't want to be with anybody. I want to move to New York when I graduate from high school and be a writer. And that's what I wanted. And um, I broke his heart, and I didn't mean to. And I guess he got desperate. And then something absolutely horrifying happened. Can you take us back with you and tell us what you experienced? I had my daughter on July fourth of nineteen eighty. And it's funny how quickly my life changed when I made the decision to become a mom and to be a single mom. We celebrated her first birthday in 1981 and with a big parade and down Burner Highway. And I used to clown around and some of my friends who were clowns, they they came and they were tickling after her. And, and it was such a beautiful first birthday. And from July 4th of 1981 to July 4th of 1982, my life changed drastically. And my homicide, I'm a homicide survivor, and we have what we call homicide anniversaries. And my homicide anniversary is April 30th of 1982. And 
I had been living on my own for about eight months and I was in my apartment and I was excited about the life I had planned for me and my little baby girl. And I was going to school and I had a routine. We had a routine. I would get her up and, you know, take her to the sitters and I would take the bus to school and I would come home and we would do dinner. I had a little schoolroom set up for her and where I taught her her alphabets and, and numbers and colors. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful time in our life and so innocent. And when I think of that time in my life, our lives, there was the me before and there was me after. And in the morning hours of April 30th, uh, about a mile from where I was in my own apartment, um, her father was back at home living with his mom. And uh, about two o'clock in the morning, they had gotten into an argument and he chased her out of the house. And she ran out the door, a few doors down to the neighbor's house, screaming for help. And he tackled her and... uh, stabbed her 28 times with a pair of kitchen shears. And his brother, his older brother, heard what was going on and he ran down to help her. Now, mind you, keep in mind that he was under the influence of a myriad of drugs, street drugs. I don't know what he was on, but this was, of course, propelling him to do this as well. It was part of the mix. And when his brother came to save him, to save his mother, their mother, Uh, He stabbed him and he took him down to the police were called. Now, I'm certain that they when they got the call, they were probably thinking, oh, it's a domestic call. Some guy slapping his woman around in a drunken stupor. And so they were very casual when they came upon the scene, I think, because when they got there, they saw, you know, two people fighting for their lives and they didn't know where the perpetrator was. So they they had to shift gears. Now, his younger brother, who was also in the house with them, had come out of the house and told the police, he's in the house, he's in the house. And they go in the house and they apprehend him. They cuff him, hands behind his back, and they put him in the backseat of the cruiser. And back in those days, the cars didn't have the dividers between the front and back seats. And while they were trying to save the lives of, you know, these two people, these two other people, he slipped his hands out from behind his back. He jumped over the front seat and he started the car up and he took off and he sold the cruiser. And he ended up driving up Woodward Avenue, which is the, you know, the main street. It's main street of of downtown Detroit is what it is. It's called Woodward through several different communities, Highland Park, Hamtramck. And then he went into um, Oakland County where he went through Ferndale, a town called Ferndale, and then into Royal Oak, where he had hit another man. He had ran over a man on a motorcycle who was on his way home from work to his wife and his family. And, you know, of course, I didn't know any of this. This this is unfolding while we're sleeping. And I woke up later that Friday morning, and it was a beautiful, beautiful spring day. And You know, I got my baby girl up. I didn't have to go to school. I got my baby girl up and we went grocery shopping and laundry. And we used to like to take a lot of what we called I spy walks, you know, I, I spy with my little eye and, you know, or show me a triangle or show me a circle. You know, it was those kind of things. And we had just come back from that walk. All the errands were ran and the house was cleaned and we went for this walk. And then I come home and I remember, you know, I had made her breakfast for dinner. She had oatmeal and jelly toast and she was sitting at the dinner table and in her high chair and she was eating and I was 
you know, putting, doing something. I don't remember what I was doing exactly. And my phone rang and it was my mom and she was very, my mother tends to be very dramatic as we all think our mothers can be. And, and she says to me, she goes, Terry, I have, I have some news for you. I need you to sit down. And I said, oh, stop, just, just tell me, you know? And she's like, no, I need to know you're sitting down. And so I lied to her and I said, okay, I'm sitting. And, um, and she starts reading to me this article out of the free press. And I just remember my entire body going cold and it, it, my body did this adrenaline dump. And I mean, it wasn't just like a rush. I mean, from head to toe, my body was just like shivered with it. I, and I, I got really nauseous and I felt like I wanted to throw up. And I remember dropping the phone and falling to my knees and I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was drowning, you know, and I was pounding on the floor and I was trying to find my breath and, and, um, and my mind was just crazy. And then all of a sudden my breath, I find my breath again. And there was this like caterwauling that just came out of me and it was startling. I couldn't even believe it came from me. It was so wild in its sound. And my baby started, was, was beyond startled. She responded to my, my grief and um, to my trauma. And I thought, oh my God, instantly, I was like, stuff the feelings down, stuff the feelings down. You can't feel this. You, 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 you know, I can't do this. I, I can't do this. She can't see this. And that was my first, like, there it goes. My first time in not dealing with feelings. And I rush to her and I pick her up and I hold her and I comfort her. And I can hear my mom, the phone's on the floor and I can hear her calling my name, you know, tell me you're okay. Tell me you're okay. You know, and I quieted my baby and, you know, I went and I, I picked up the phone and I said, you're wrong. I got to go. And I hung up and I put my baby back at the table. She was all calmed down and, you know, she resumed eating her dinner or supper, as my dad used to say. And um, I called over to the house and uh, my ex-boyfriend's mom had a gentleman friend. He was her boyfriend and he answered the phone and I said, hey, I need to speak to her. You know, I, I mentioned her name and um, and he had he was very he was a southern gentleman. And he's like, well, she's not here right now. And he handed the phone over to her oldest daughter. And um, that's how I found out that it was true. I was having a conversation with his sister and she was like, how did you find out? I said, it's in the paper. And she's like, well, we need to get a hold of their dad, his dad, you know, because they had different dads. And I don't know how to get a hold of him. And I said, well, I do, you know, because his dad and his stepmother, who who I lived with kind of as a foster child, had moved to California and they didn't have any contact information. And I did. And I, I said, I can get a hold of them. And I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I was like floored. I was like, I was numb. I was numb. I was numb. But yet now I was making a phone call like the one I just got. And it's a domino effect. So I'm speaking to a stepmom and, you know, how do you say it? You just say it, you know? And I remember telling her, I said, he killed her. And she was like, what? And I said, yeah. And she's like, no, no. And, you know, we're, we're grieving together. We're crying. We're, we are breaking apart together. And that was the beginning. So what happened to him after that point? How did he get caught? And what did that do with you? The chase, when the chase ended in 
the police apprehended him a second time, they they beat him. They beat him severely. And, um, you know, everybody was, uh, I can only imagine, I can only imagine, that's all I can do. So he, they take him back to Detroit and they put him in jail. And it was like three days before, this is what he tells me when we see each other and we talk for the first time about it all, that he didn't even know what he had done. He just remembers they had him in a straight jacket and he was covered in blood, days old, crusted blood on his body. And then when he started coming to and realizing what was going on, that's when he found out exactly what happened. And, you know, that was a Friday and my life changed forever. I remember, you know, my family, I went to my sister's house. I was close with my sister at that time. And I remember going to her house to get away. I had to get away. I was, I was, I was crushed. I was broken. I was devastated. I was. And so my, my two older brothers and my sister and her husband and their two kids, their two daughters and my dad were at the house with me. And they were saying things that, you know, were too bad he didn't die in that car accident, you know, and, you know, and just tell your daughter he's dead, you know, and, you know, and, you know, I, I get that it was coming from a place of love. I understand that. But no one asked me how I felt, not at all. And in our family, it was like, okay, that happened Friday. Today's Saturday. You're over it. And no one asked me how I felt. They told me what I needed to do. And that was it. That was it. And um, I was like, wow, what do I do with this? How do do I unpack this? You know, I, I knew I had to stuff it down yesterday, but, you know... Saturday's here and tomorrow is Sunday, you know, how long? And, uh, and that's pretty much how it went. I never went and saw him during his trial or anything. I had no communication with him until he had been sentenced. But until that time, I, we had seen each other probably six weeks before the event. That's what we call it, the event. I call it the event that happened at friend of court. And uh, it was such a strange time. And I was desperate. I was broken. I went to school. I spoke with the social worker that was part of this program I was in. It was a Votech program. And I told her what happened. And I said, I need to stop this child support case against him. I said, you know, this is what happened. And I can't deal with it. And so she took care of it for me. And then things just got worse for me because I couldn't talk about it. And, you know, your kids are intuitive. They're very hypervigilant to how a parent feels. And my daughter was very tuned in that there was something different with me. Our routine had changed. You know, I had tended to her basic needs. I, I, I could barely get up in the morning, but I did because I knew I had to get up. I bathed her and clothed her and loved her and read to her and took care of her because I knew I had to do that because it gave me something to do. And that's how it went. And I remember, you know, uh, thinking, God, when is it? When, when, when? And this is just like three or four months after. And I came home from school one day. I hadn't seen her talk to him. Like I said, I hadn't seen her talk to him. And I think this is probably about November or something around my 21st birthday. And I had a letter in the mail from him from prison. And I'm reading it. I I don't really remember what was in the letter, 
you know, as his proclamation of love to me because I, I tossed it aside and I was reading the other three letters he had attached to it. And they were songs that were handwritten. And it was 12th of never, always on my mind and open arms. And I remember going, you know, I was like, now I have to worry about his feelings for me. And I don't even know how I feel about life or anything at all. How did you survive after all of that? How did you process that huge bag of trauma and loneliness and anger and grief and pain? What did you do? Well, when I received the letters from him, you know, I I, I broke. I you know, I was like I had I had nothing to to figure out. There was just so much. There was just so much to break down, and. I thought, okay, you know, then I was in so much pain, so much pain. And I thought, okay, well, you know, how about this? And I started to fixate on suicidal ideation. And, you know, and I, I struggled with it at first. And then I thought, no, 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 but think about it. Think about it. And so I did. I started thinking about it. I'm like, oh my God, I won't have to deal with any of this. None of these feelings, none of these emotions, none of my, none of the people, you know, my family, his family, you know, none of it. God, that was the answer. And I planned it out. I wrote a letter instructing my brother to take custody of my daughter and raise her. And I thought, oh, and I was at peace. There's a certain, when, when you have a fixation as I had, you know, I, it wasn't like I just came to that conclusion. I had to rationalize it. And so I was thinking about it for weeks, you know, because I was functioning. I was getting up. I was eating. I was showering. I was going to school. I was taking care of my baby. I was doing the things I knew that I had to do because they still had to be done. But I wasn't feeling anything. It was like, go left, go right, go straight, one foot in front of the other. I mean, it was literally that robotic for me. I thought, okay, this is it. I felt good. I felt at peace. And I was laying on the couch, you know, and watching, laying on, on the couch on my back with my my head up, my one arm up over my forehead. And my baby girl came up to me. We had this thing that we did where she would put her head on my chest and she would say, I hear you. And, you know, my heartbeat. And I would say, I hear you, you know, and, you know, I love you, you know. And she came over and she did that to me in that moment where it was like, it was so peaceful. I was like, yes, this is it. I got an answer. And I like to say, if the homicide didn't blow up my entire world, what little piece of it I had left in that moment was demolished. And uh, I said, I can't do this. You know, she needs me. There has to be, you know, it, it's like that time, you know, that I think about my mom. You know, God put me here for a reason. And and I went right into that mode of like, there's it, there's got to be, there's got to be. And I made a commitment to do this journey with my daughter when I chose to be a single mom and I was going to see it through. And I decided that I was going to see it through. And I like to say that I walked out of the calm and into the storm. And in that moment, when I walked into the storm, I wasn't scared. There was something weird that was just 
I was just so convicted that I knew everything was going to be all right. And I knew everything was going to be okay. And I knew that there was a reason that this was happening in my life. And I was angry. I was full of hate. And I was raging. And I was at war with God, with my source, with my connection, my universe, you know, my spirit. I was at war. And I was like, I'm going to prove that there is no God. Why would this happen? Why would this happen? And and I was angry, but I needed comforting at the same time. It was such this strange dichotomy. And I, I still at night, I would go to bed at night and I would get up and I, I would just lay there. I would never sleep. I mean, I don't even know how I slept throughout all of this. But I remember after, it might have been a year or so, because I had started getting to the point where I couldn't sleep. I was having dreams. I was having dreams of his mom. His mom was coming to me in dreams. I was having dreams of his brother and his uncle and they were coming to me in my dreams and I couldn't sleep. I was broken. And, you know, I turned to the Catholic church. I remember turning to the Catholic church saying, you know, you know, the church offers shelter, right? Comfort, you know, shelter from the storm. I was in a storm. I was in a raging, raging, raging storm. And I thought one more time, one more time. And this is where I got angry. Actually, this is where I got angry because I did turn to the church and I remember you know, them basically saying, well, you know, we all have to suffer like Christ suffered. You know, like basically they were saying, this is your cross to bear, you know, get used to it is what it came down to. And, and that was cold. I mean, that was as cold as my family. And that's when I started getting angry. I'm like, I have no one to turn to. I have no one to comfort me. I turned to the church and, and yes, the church welcomed me, but they welcomed me with a backhanded, you know, explanation as to why this was happening. And that's when I got really angry. I got really, really angry. And I thought, why? So I just continued to move forward. You know, it was up and down. My life was, my, I was, I was rudderless. And that went on for, for quite a long time, quite a long time. I, I worked, I would get great jobs. I worked them for a year, two years, and I would quit. I moved a lot. I was restless, beyond restless. But, you know, as my daughter started getting older and started getting ready to start school, I had to really start focusing and buckling down. And I also was angry that, you know, I had, there was a lot I had to figure out. And one of the first things I said to myself was when I made the decision to walk into the storm was like, I am never going to lie to my daughter. I will always tell her the truth in a way that she will understand. I had to cut his family loose. I couldn't deal with the emotional baggage that they had, and rightfully so. And I don't mean to refer to it or minimize it by saying baggage. They had experienced trauma too, you know. And I had an interaction with one of his brothers who had come by that propelled me to make that decision. The less they saw my daughter, the less they would hurt, and the less my daughter would be subjected to uh, animosity because she looked just like her father, you know. And so I I had to walk away from them. I cut them loose. So that was, you know, number one. Okay. I was never going to lie to my daughter. I was always going to tell her the truth in a way that she would understand because I didn't want her to hear adults over talking one day about it and her finding out that way or her cousins going, there's a family secret and this is it, you know, about her father. I was, she was going to hear the truth and it was going to be from me. 
I would never allow lie about my life and my experiences prior to having her. And that's how we started our relationship. And as she got older, you know, she would ask me, she asked me one day, you know, do I have a dad? Because she's in school. She's, you know, in priest, she's four years old and she's in Head Start. And she's seeing these kids with their other dad and she sees her, her nieces, her cousins with their dad, you know, and she asked me, she's like, do I have dad? And I said, yes, you do. And I said, and he loves you very, very much. And that answer satisfied her. She didn't ask where he was or anything, but as she got older, you know, I answered those questions. And one day she must've been about six, five or six at the time. And she asked me, she's like, well, where is my dad? And so I explained to her, I said, well, you know how mommy has rules for you? You know, like, don't talk to strangers. You can't play in the street. Don't touch fire. And she's like, yes. I said, if you break the rules, I said, mommy punishes you and I send you to your room, right? And she's like, yes. I said, well, adults have rules too, and they're called laws. And when adults break the laws, they have to go to a big building that has lots of rooms until a judge says that they can come home. I said, and your daddy broke the law and he's in a room where the judge told him he had to go. And she was like, oh, okay. And it made sense to her, you know? And I was very proud of myself because as I'm stepping through these minefields, you know, the instinct in me, the intuition that I had to be that for her, I'm proud of myself. What I'm not proud of when I look back on it was not allowing myself to heal, but that's a different story. And I was very proud of proud of how I handled it. And out of all the crimes that he committed, when I tell people this, he served a combined sentence of seven and a half years, and then he was eligible for parole. And now my daughter is in the fourth grade. And I knew when she started her school career that I didn't have all the answers. I I, I didn't have all the answers. I didn't know. I, I knew I needed help with this. So when she started her school career, I turned to the principal. And we were in Dearborn Public Schools. And I said, hey, this is what's going on in my home. And I need help. And I'll never forget it. He made a phone call. He goes, I'm going to get back to you. He made a phone call. He got the school social worker involved. We had a meeting with the teacher. And I said, I need to know that, you know, this is what's going on. And as I tell her this story, and she learns the truth about her father and what he did, I need to know that if you see anything shift or change here in school. And they even went one further. They set her up with sessions with the school social worker, you know, and and we created an alliance. And I was very, it was, that was instinctive to me. You know, it's almost as like that was my purpose. And that's how it went. And so in the fourth grade, I get notification he's being paroled. And so we make contact. He contacts me and he's like, as I knew, he wanted to see his daughter. And I said, we need to talk in person first. So we did, we met. And I said, I need to get a feel for you to make sure that you're okay. Number one, I said, and number two, this is her choice and her decision. I said, I have to tell her everything now about what happened with your mom, because she doesn't know that yet. She knows everything up to. And I said, and if she decides she wants to meet you, then I'll make the arrangements. I said, and if she decides she doesn't, then it's not happening. And um, he's like, okay. So I go home. I, I wait a week because I always told her news about her father on a Saturday. 
because I didn't want it to upset her school week. So come Monday, maybe she might have some of it out of her system. And so the following Saturday comes and I take her out, you know, and I said, I have something I need to tell you. And she's like, okay. And so we talked about her dad. I, she had asked me prior to this, you know, well, what law did he break? And I told her, I said, well, you can't hurt people and your dad hurt people that we love. And so he's being punished for it. And so she knew that he had hurt someone. She just didn't know anything about it. And so I told her. And the only person that I told her about was her grandmother. I didn't make mention of anything else because that was enough for an, a nine-year-old to go through. She was eight going on nine at the time. And so I didn't tell her anything else. But I, I said to her, I, I remember sitting there looking at her and I said, remember when, and I went over all the steps of telling her, when I told you this about your dad, and she's like, yes. And when I told you that about your dad, when he hurt people that we love, and she's like, yes, I remember. And I said, so then I said, well, you know how mommy has, you have grandma from mommy? And she's like, yes, I do. And I said, well, you also have a grandma from daddy. I said, but you're never going to get to meet her. And she looked at me and I said, because your, your dad hurt her, you know, and I, I wanted to give her a minute to, so she could process it. And, and she was, she was thinking it through. I could see her and she's like, you mean hurt like she's dead? And I said, yes, hurt like she's dead. And she didn't, she didn't respond the way I thought she should have. There was, there wasn't any tears. She internalized it. And, and I, I, I don't know why I remember thinking that odd, but that was just her response. And, and I said, well, now your dad, remember how I told you the judge sent him away? And she's like, yes. And I said, well, the judge gave him permission to come home and he wants to meet you. I said, now I want you to know your feelings aren't right and they aren't wrong. They just are. And I said, and if you want to meet him, that's okay. And if you don't want to meet him, that's okay too. And it was important for me to let her know he was there because my family was really against all of that. And, you know, because they felt it was going to be harmful to her. And we had words. Oh, yes. There were many, 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 many words exchanged over what I was doing and the choices I was making for her. And she wanted to meet him. And uh, my one brother and I, we had words and I said, well, she's not your child. I'm raising her. I remember we make the arrangements. I make the arrangements. I said, okay, mommy will make it happen. And it was very hard for me. You know, my, my daughter is an adult now. She is just now understanding. I'm hoping she is as I am honest with her more and more about why I internalized but it took a lot of control and grace for me to be around her father because of the anger and the hatred I felt towards him. I mean, I was rageful. And at this time, I'm still not processing my feelings. I have put her feelings before mine. And that was it. And that was my, that was my distraction. I put her feelings before mine. So I made it happen. And People wonder, how can you even be with him? How can you even see him? Why would you allow it? None of your business, mind your own business, shut up. You know, this is all, this is all part of the journey. And that's pretty much how it went. She got to see him and I had to eat my feelings. And it was, it was really odd. And she was excited to see him. And 
I remember we met at the Briarwood Mall in Ann Arbor. Actually, I picked him up. We're walking around. You know, well, first we we go to eat and she's looking at him and she has us sit together and she's sitting across from us. This is the first time she's seeing her parents together ever, her mother and her father, her mom and her dad. And she's looking at us and she's taking it in and I'm I'm watching her, you know, I'm, I'm just like, I'm cautious, you know, I'm like, okay, this is making her happy and she's processing and that's okay. And I have to sit here next to him. You know, but that's okay, you know, because it's for her. And so we order food and we eat and we go for a walk and we're walking through the mall and she's still, you know, like clinging like to the hem of my skirt, although I wasn't wearing a skirt, but you know what I'm saying? And she goes over on one of the playscapes and he follows her. I'm watching them. I'm like, I'm like beyond mama bear mode. I'm like, "Mm." he reaches out to her and she lets him hug her. And that was it. And I had to sit there and watch that happen for her. In this conversation, we've we've talked a lot about how you had to be strong. You had to be strong for your daughter. You had to manage even at the toughest time that times that you went through when you almost lost it all. You did not really invest a lot of time in in rebuilding you, in healing you. So I wonder when did your healing journey begin? And where would you say you are at in that journey as of now? Life is funny. I, I always had my daughter as a, as a distraction. And we, we, we had a hard time, my daughter and I, as she, would, she was coming up. Uh, I would stay my ground with her. You know, uh, I would not allow her to tell me excuses. I can't do this because of her father and that story. And I'm like, no, 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 no. No, we don't make excuses in this family. Yeah, it happened, but get old. But but we're moving on and we're dealing with this. That's not an excuse to not progress in life. And as I was pushing her along and she was moving along in her life, my a, a man I used to date before um, had come back into mine. And I had just started to, to heal. I started a healing journey and uh, at that time. And I told him, I said, look, you know, you had your issues. This is why we didn't stay together. You know, I'm on this journey. And, you know, if you want to walk this path with me, great. But if you walk this path with me, all of that chaos in your life has to be left behind. And he agreed. So he was like, he didn't want to lose me, which that should have been a red flag. But we 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 get together and, you know, he's he's in recovery and I'm on a healing journey and you know, oh, this is great, you know, da, 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 da. And we get married and all of a sudden things change. And you know what? I was no longer my focus. I had this distraction of a a marriage and a husband and, you know, and his, his two kids, which I had known previously, because again, we had dated for a few years before and I, I never really allowed myself to process. And because I didn't process it, allowed me to make a bad decision getting into a marriage with a man that I knew I shouldn't have married to begin with. And I knew that intuitively, you know, I had trusted all my instincts before in the past, my intuition before in the past, I need to do this for my daughter. I need to do that for my daughter. I need to do this for my daughter. And then this needs to get done. And, you know, I was trying to control her healing is what I was trying to do. You know, now here I was, you know, I had been living on my own for a couple of years and I was 
taking care of me. And now there was this man who no longer wanted me to take care of myself. And things changed. I, the marriage, after a few years, it was, it was very volatile. And I, I fell into a depression. I was not happy in that marriage at all. And how I stayed in it for 20 years was beyond me. But in January of 2020, I had decided I was going to start a healing journey. I was unhappy. The marriage was just horrible. I was miserable. We hadn't slept in the same room for probably three years at this point. And um, I wanted more. I raised my daughter. I helped raise my grandkids. And I was a part of their lives. And I was the fun grandma. And, you know, and the kids, my grandkids were growing up. And they didn't want to hang out with me, you know. And I thought, well, now it's time for me. And maybe, you know, I can save this marriage. And so I started seeing a therapist. After a couple of sessions, I, I invited him. I said, would you like to come along? Hoping he would say no. And he did. He's like, no, this is about you. He's like, I don't want to. I'm not interested. We both knew it was over. And I was like, okay, all right. And I went into it. And the thing about homicide healing, it's very, you know, people, as I started healing and started getting really honest with myself, talking about it specifically around people who something happens when, uh, when somebody dies by homicide and it's almost like they don't exist anymore. Nobody talks about them. Um, and it's sad. We, we rarely, my family, we never ever did they talk about my daughter's father at all. And, and that's just how it was. They, you know, if it wasn't for my daughter, it would have been great for them. You know, because then they wouldn't have to acknowledge anything I experienced. But, you know, I spent all those years, I had, I had years ago learned, I had to forgive him because I was in conflict. That was probably my first real round of healing where I had to forgive him. And him and I were having conversations. We were, you know, we were crying and talking about this experience. And that was for a few years. As you can imagine, he would go off and on abusing himself with substances, substances and things like that. But, you know, he, I became a lifeline for him in many ways. Uh, after we had forgiven, I had forgiven him. And, but I still hadn't forgiven myself. I still had these feelings of hatred, anger, and rage. And they were always there with me all the time. And that's something people don't understand when they haven't experienced homicide. You can lose somebody by any means of loss, you know, a car accident, cancer, a drowning, and anything, any anything. And it and it's tragic and it's and it's traumatizing to you. But there's something about homicide. When somebody dies in a car accident, you're not going to carry anger, hatred, and rage with you throughout your life. You're going to accept it for what it was. It was a tragic, it was a tragedy. It was a car accident. That's sad. It was cancer. They gave it a good fight. That's sad. We lost them. But you have that. With homicide, it's different. And there's this echo of emotion that never goes away, at least for me. For me, those feelings were anger, hatred, and rage. And I look back in my life as a single mom where they were with me all the time. It was like I, I shielded my daughter. Like, you know, I was very protective. But, you know, if you were to see me from the outside, you know, wow, she's, she's a professional. She's dressed nice and she's got her hair and makeup on and she's a good mom and I love my daughter and all of that, that was true. But on the inside, I could rip your heart out if you were to cross me. 
I like to say it like I thought I was the Incredible Hulk. I know what rage does to a human being's soul. So I was never afraid. I was never afraid. That rage was with me all the time. And I look on, as I look back on that now through my healing, that protected me. That protected my daughter. And I was grateful to have that feeling at that time. However, if there had been somebody who would have told me back then that those feelings of anger, hatred, and rage were a perfectly normal response to trauma, I think our lives, my life, and my my daughter's life, and our healing would have been very different. But I had those feelings, and they lingered with me. And that's how I utilized those feelings as a way of protecting myself and my daughter. It's, It's odd that we're talking about this because it was just relatively recent where, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of shame that comes with those feelings. There's a lot of shame with homicide too, because you're feeling these really overwhelming feelings. And from the time we're kids, you know, we're taught, you know, things that make you feel bad aren't good. You don't feel that. You don't want to feel that. That's bad. That's bad. Don't look at it. Here's good. Here's happy. Here's laughter. Here's joy. Here's funny. Here's this. Here's that. The pursuit of happiness. It was, it was gifted to us by our forefathers, right? You know, so we don't want anything bad. Don't look at bad. Don't look at bad. And so here I was struggling with those, these feelings of, I was playing a part of being good, of looking good and feeling good, but I was hating on these feelings over here, not knowing at the time these feelings were doing what they needed to do, which was protect me. But I struggled with that. And I was ashamed of those feelings. And for a long, long time, Up until recently, I was very, very ashamed of them. I have made peace with them. You know, I identified them. I had to break them down. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of rage. I now know that they're there if I need them ever, ever again, if I need them to call on them to defend me and to protect me. They're there, but I've got them trained. And I now affectionately refer to them as my junkyard dogs. I'm okay with that because out of darkness, you can't have dark without light. You can't have good without bad. You can't have happiness without sad. You can't have life without death. I mean, and here we are. I'm not sure if this just is a a cultural thing that's unique to the United States, but I think we do a disservice to ourselves and to our children. And this is where generational trauma comes into play. We do not say it's okay to have a bad feeling, you know, it's okay. It's okay. I know you are trying to change the narrative regarding survivors of homicide, especially survivors of what we refer to as mass shootings. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, this is something that's important to me. Homicide is a very personal experience. Victims of homicide are oftentimes murdered by someone they know and generally close to the family, if not a family member. It's very personal. It happens every day in this country and it's not on the news. My daughter had been out of high school one year when Columbine happened. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, thank God she's not in school anymore. Like it was an anomaly, but it's become an epidemic in this country. And from my trauma experience in homicide, I I have a visceral reaction every time, every time, because I know, I know how, I like to say when homicide struck my life, it was like meteor meets dinosaur. 
because that's just what it's like. Your life is never the same. Which once was before is never the same ever again. Never, ever. And I, I feel for that. I feel for that mother, that father, the brother, the sister. And I don't think that Americans have a true understanding. We have become so casual to it that in the media, it's a mass shooting. No, 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 no. It's not a mass shooting. Right now we're experiencing an active shooter with potential casualties. Let's start putting labels on that. Because when you put that label on it, it, it's different. Oh, 23 kids were murdered in their classroom today. Now, there was a mass shooting and 23 people died. We had an election in 2016 where the very topic were words matter. So let's start putting the words that truly matter, that truly describe what is going on. And let's start letting people experience that in a way that they never did before. It's homicide. That's what it is. We've had a mass homicide. 26 children were murdered in their classroom. And that's going to make people think differently, I hope. And I want to people to understand that for every victim, for every one victim, there is in a mass shooting, there are people of one, two, and three degrees of separation and more as it goes out that are impacted by that loss, that are impacted by that trauma. And some people don't survive that that trauma. They don't survive the storm. I know how grateful I was. For some reason, I have always had a sense of gratitude where I would say to myself, it could be worse. It could be worse. It could have been me. It could have been anybody. Anything can happen. And people don't understand that because they can change the channel and turn the page. They'll tune into Dateline or ID Discovery, you know, and watch document series dedicated to the grisly details of a homicide. But if it was their next door neighbor and they wanted to talk about it, they'd tune them out. I don't want to hear it. Because why? Because survivors like myself are just a reflection of how ugly a society we live in. And we are a violent country. And it's time we start facing that. And I think when we start talking about mass shootings and identifying them as homicides, and taking the method in which they've been murdered off the table and start saying they were murdered because somebody can be shot and survive it. Somebody can be stabbed and survive it. But when we take the method in which these homicides are being committed off the table and start discussing ways that we can resolve this issue of the violence that we experience in our country, then we can drag And we start focusing on those that are left behind. Because once the homicide victim is gone, they're they're gone. But they are not forgotten to the people who they were ripped from their lives. And when people start seeing that and start realizing it's just not a one-off, it's just not one person, it's a family, then maybe, maybe we can start having some empathy. I am very disgusted by our elected officials. We have Lauren Boebert who was on TikTok with a t-shirt that was gifted to her where it said, since we are redefining things, and there was an image of an AK-47, it said, this is now a cordless hole puncher. And we have Greg Abbott in Texas mocking five homicide victims that he said were here illegally and offering a $50,000 reward for the recovery of the man who murdered them. And he didn't say murder. He said shot them. And as a homicide survivor, that's a slap in my face. 
I tangled with protesters, gun protesters in Greek town two weeks ago. And the argument came out where one of the gentlemen said, I said, you will never understand the anger, the hatred, the rage. And this one man said to me, why would you hate? And it made me realize, I thought, what a stupid question. I just tell you what happened to me in my life. And you ask me why I would hate. And I realized people don't get it. They don't understand because they don't carry those kind of feelings with them on a daily after homicide, like survivors do. And I think when people understand that more and more, it's my hope. It's my hope that it starts to change, that people start saying, yes, we need to look at this and then start discussing the method in which homicide is being committed in this country and breaking it down and dealing with it. And of course, we know this country loves its guns, but it's a conversation that needs to be had with the survivors of these homicides in mind and the nation as we come to grips with how violent we become and start to heal. How do you use your lived experience specifically to help others? How can people learn more about you and get in touch with you? I think for me, going through what I went through was very heavy experience. I, I have no regrets in my life. I have no regrets. And if I had to choose to do this all over again, as strange as it sounds, I would do it all over again because I love who I am. I genuinely know that I am good to the core. And I had to find purpose. I had to find meaning in all of this. I've always wanted to help others. And I could never find a way that I could actually do it. And that's because I wasn't healed. And so as I went through this journey and I started healing, I started to find my purpose. TikTok, this is going to be so crazy, is amazing. I was able to take the courage and the voice that my father gave me and I put it out there. And I'm grateful. Everything happens for a reason and this is my moment. And I, I've come to my moment realizing that change has got to happen. And by encouraging people to share their homicide healing. And maybe we can facilitate change. On my podcast, I am inviting people to come and share their homicide stories, their homicide healing with me. It's, it's very traumatic. And a lot of people don't like to talk about it because it, it even makes them uncomfortable. Some of them don't want to talk about it. I've had people reach out to me and say, you know, my wife was murdered 16 years ago. You just learned to live with it. I had somebody else tell me how it's been 40 years and they still can't talk about it. Someone else tells me how they're living with it every day, you know, and, and we're like walking zombies. And I am hoping through my experience, being very vulnerable about who I am and what I experienced. And I'm not ashamed of those feelings. I'm not ashamed. I'm no longer ashamed of the feelings that I had because they are deep and they are real and they are raw and they don't make you feel good. They don't, they didn't make me feel good. And it's okay. It's okay that you don't feel good. You've experienced some trauma, but by talking about it and letting it go and healing yourself, you're healing those around you. I know that I tried to do everything I could to control the healing of my daughter so she would never have to feel those feelings like I felt. And she ended up feeling them anyway. She ended up struggling with her own ideation. She ended up going through the journey that she was meant to go through, and I had no say in it. The best thing that I could have ever done for her then was to heal myself, like being on a plane and the oxygen mask drop. You put yours on first. And that's what I should have done. But I didn't have anybody there to tell me. But I figured it out. 
I was still able to protect her while neglecting myself, but at least one of us was safe. So I thought. And so it's important in your healing. It's okay to put yourself first. It's okay to look in the mirror and sometimes not like yourself and hate the situation that you're in and to hate yourself. It's okay. It's all right. And then you can let it go because the minute you accept it, it's gone. It's no longer, you're no longer afraid of it. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of who you are. And yeah, that's just it. And I think that once people start sharing their stories and they're getting out there, hopefully it becomes, you know, other people will start doing it too, getting on TikTok, sharing their stories, getting on some kind of media and saying, this is what happened. And this is how I felt. Talking to your legislators, having a meeting with them. If you have a grief group, have them come, listen to your grief. Have one of your local elected officials come and listen to you, your state representative. Get people to listen to your story because that's the only way that change is going to happen. And your story matters. Your words are important. What you've been through is important. And that, and by sharing that, that's where change is going to happen. You don't have to be ashamed of your struggles. Not anymore. Everybody else has representation in this society. Why don't survivors of homicide have that? So it's time that we start representing ourselves. And I'm hoping that my itty bitty podcast, you know, helps facilitate some of that change, even if it's just in my corner of the world, you know, that impacts those around me and in my community. But we can't expect change to happen if we're not vocal about what needs to be changed. And only homicide survivors can really speak to what that change needs to be. So how can people find your podcast and how can they get in touch with you? Also, thank you very much, Terry. This was an amazing conversation. I hope that we can have a follow-up interview sometime. And I know that you want to close this with a very special poem. So here you go. Well, the name of my podcast is called There Is Life After. And you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Services, uh, Google, wherever you find your podcast, you can find the podcast. And the email for that is called thereislifeafter at gmail.com. And please have anybody, please, you know, they can reach me at the Gmail and I'll definitely respond to them. You know, when I was going through, it's amazing. I, I am now such a spiritual person. I, I have always been connected to a source I now realize. And it was a source that was provided to me from my mother and my father when I was a little girl. And I was totally unaware of it. So all this time as I'm going through this struggle and this turmoil, and I'm thinking I'm alone. I have that nugget of God put me here for a reason. And my father telling me, when you walk in a room, hold your head high and know that you belong. You know, that was my purpose and my strength and confidence. So as I was going through school and I had made the decision to walk into the storm at that moment in my life, in class, we got this writing assignment. And I remember sitting there, I wrote this poem. And then we had to stand up and we had to read it. And I read it. And out of 30 people in the class and the instructor, they were like, you wrote that? And it was like in, in 20 minutes, you know, and, and it just came out of me. So 
as I started my healing journey, I, I had a box of writings because I'm a writer and a lot of stuff that I wrote related to my trauma. And because I was unhealed, I didn't find any beauty in that trauma that I was writing. I thought it was childish. I thought it was stupid. I thought it didn't matter. They were bad feelings. And I had the box of stuff thrown out. And a few months ago, that poem came back to me and it came back to me for a reason. And as I, re- as I recited the poem, and I rewrote it down, I realized I had prophesied my own healing. I just didn't know it at the time. So the name of the poem is called, And Then I Cry. I see the dark of midnight shines, the deep of darkest night, to match the deep dark soul of me who has given up the fight. I have tried so hard to keep my strength, to feed myself some hope, but hope is not the thing I need. Please toss me down a rope. For through the dark of midnight shines, the stars that give me light, and shines its fuel with precious beam upon my face with valiant gleam. I see the spark to me it brings, the spark to fuel the flame. I follow closely, but not too close for fear, for pain, for shame. To whom I question, I question loudly, to whom, to whom I blame. But in this flame of hope, but in this flame, this flame of hope, I see myself come shining through. The warmth I feel do penetrate, the strength alone I generate. For this is me, thy heart and soul, I rise up from the depths and soar upon the clouds so high. I found the strength, the strength to rise. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then I cry. Suffering is over. My will hath all been done. I fly so high and soar so free. For if not this, then what? I wonder with open arms I glide. I'm free. And then I cry. And that means more to me now than it ever did. Because I truly am free now. My dear cherished thoughtvolutionists. As we stand at the end of this season's grand finale, emotions swell within me like a symphony reaching its crescendo. It is with profound gratitude and a heart brimming with admiration that I address each and every one of you today. Thank you from the depths of my being for joining me on this incredible journey through season one of Thoughtvolution. Reflecting on the past episodes, I'm humbled by the remarkable individuals who graced our conversations with their wisdom, vulnerability, and resilience. Each guest has left a permanent mark on the fabric of our podcast, weaving together stories that have touched our souls and expanded our understanding of the human experience. To Jennifer, Dustin, Anna, Nariman, Don, Donnie, Deb, Haley, Eric, Aaron, Suzanne, Olga, Dallas, Susie, Sandra, Scarlett, Yeti, Jenny, Jen, Balin, Charlie, Vicky, Emily, Tyler, Gabby, and Terry. Your voices, your stories, your truths have resonated deeply within the hearts of our listeners. Together we've created something truly remarkable, a tapestry of diverse perspectives and shared humanity. Speaking of Terry, our final storyteller of the season. Her courage and resilience as a homicide survivor have been more than inspiring to remember those often silenced or even worse, forgotten. Her story stands as a testament to the strength of the human spirit, and her willingness to share her journey has undoubtedly inspired countless listeners. As we bid farewell to Season 1, rest assured that Season 2 is just around the corner with lots of untold stories, new voices, and fresh perspectives waiting to be discovered. 
So my dear friends, let the anticipation linger within you as we embark on another transformative chapter of Thoughtvolution. But before we part ways for what is left of the summer, I want to take a moment to wish each and every one of you many moments filled with warmth, joy, and profound connection. May the sun's rays illuminate your path, and may you find solace and inspiration in the stories we've shared. To stay connected with all things Thoughtvolution during this brief break, I invite you to visit our website at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. There you'll find a treasure trove of information, including some updates on season two, our incredible guests, and ways to engage with our growing community. As we pause to catch our breath and gather the threats for the next season, please remember that your stories matter. Your experiences, your triumphs, and your challenges all deserve an audience. If you feel called to share your journey, I eagerly await your submissions. Simply fill out the intake form on our website and I will reach out to you with open arms and an open heart. Before I bid you farewell, I want to express my deepest gratitude to all of you, my Thoughtvolutionists. Your unwavering support, your heartfelt feedback, and your dedication to this podcast have fueled my passion and inspired me beyond measure. I am forever grateful for the opportunity to be a part of your lives and for the privilege of sharing these stories with you. As we conclude this chapter, I implore you to carry the lessons and the connections we forged together. Let us continue to listen, to learn, and to foster a sense of community that transcends borders, differences, and divides. I will miss you all dearly during our break. <laughs> I can promise you that. But remember, this is not goodbye, merely a brief intermission. We will reconvene soon, ready to embark on new voyages of discovery, unity, and compassion. Until we meet again, my friends, enjoy the summer sun, savor life's simplest joys, and always remember to be kind to each other. From the depths of my heart, I love you, Lotsies, and I cannot wait to reunite for the next chapter of Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. I wish you love, light, and endless possibilities. <laughs>